Welcome to Primity, where we find simple techniques to help address modern problems for our primitive bodies. My name is Andrew Pafford, and I'm a health and wellness professional with over a decade of experience helping Olympic-level athletes, desk jockeys, and seniors achieving their goals and improving their quality of life. Today is the second of our three-part series on weight loss. We'll be focusing on the role of exercise on weight loss and what its roles are and are not to help people make smarter decisions regarding physical activity in regards to weight loss. Keeping in mind, our purpose with Primity is to distill results of scientific findings into easily approachable strategies and techniques to improve health and wellness for everyday life. Now, exercise is something that I deal with on a daily basis with my clients. So I love to really go off the rails on this, but I'm gonna try to keep it on track regarding weight loss only. Now, First and foremost, I want to dispel a big myth about weight loss in regards to exercise. Exercise is always touted as a crucial component, but how and why? And equally important, how does it not affect weight loss? So, starting with the very first myth that people don't think of it at face value, but essentially this is what it is, is you will never outwork a bad diet. So when people assume diet and exercise... They're thinking that obviously I need to clean up my diet so I'm not overeating calories, but then I'm going to increase my physical activity to burn extra calories, therefore I can lose weight faster. And that is not as cut and dry as it seems. For starters, we burn way fewer calories than we think or our little devices would like us to believe. So, for example, you might recall the snack size candy bars that are quote unquote only 100 calories. They're small and they take a hot second to eat and usually they leave you wanting more, right? However, how much work is involved in burning 100 calories? A lot of times our health tracking devices are deceitful in how much energy we actually burn. And sometimes those numbers include your basal metabolic rate, meaning the energy that you would have already burned just sitting on a chair watching yourself work out. So the number that you're seeing is not extra calories burned on top of what you would have already been burning had you been doing nothing. You're looking at the total number. So to put things into perspective, let's use a relatively challenging and therefore energetically intense exercise, the burpee. On average, one burpee burns one calorie. That's it. It can be a little bit more for men if you're larger, a little bit less for women if you're smaller, but on average, it's about one calorie for one burpee. So now think really quick here. Would you want to do 100 burpees to eat one little tiny morsel of a candy bar? Chances are no, unless you're just, you have a true penchant for masochism. Now, I've done 100 burpees before, and it takes me eight minutes, and I felt like I was just put through a fight. My entire body was sore. My joints were achy. I did not appreciate it. So needless to say, trying to outwork, say, a 500-calorie surplus is not going to end well by doing 500 burpees. Of course, there are other various means of exercise, but the point being was, that's how much effort you have to do. Burpees are not easy. That's very effortful. So if it takes me 500 burpees to burn 500 calories, you have to go through that equivalent amount of effort to burn 500 calories through whatever your exercise choice is. To further the case of why going ham on workouts may not be the ultimate solution, 
there appears to be a ceiling of just how much extra energy our bodies are even willing to burn in spite of constant physical activity. So we're going to cite a fascinating study here called the Hunter-Gatherer Energetics and Human Obesity by Herman Ponser and others. This will be linked in the show notes and it's a fascinating read, but ultimately, to put it briefly, they studied a friendly hunter-gatherer tribe native to Tanzania called the Hadza. And in spite of their very active lifestyle, because they are hunter-gatherers, they have to go find their food every day, all the time. So these people are doing essentially like marathons worth of distance almost on a daily basis. So that's a lot of physical activity compared to Westerners. And in spite of their very, very active lifestyle, they still burned on average only slightly more than Westerners. So if the average Western male burns between 2,000 to 2,200 calories, the Hadza men only burned 2,400 calories. Same goes for the women, only about 100 to 200 calories more. Now, this was obviously very surprising to find, and laws of thermodynamics cannot be violated. So they're obviously doing work. They're burning energy. However, if they're still burning energy, why is their total expenditure not that much more than ours? So that means the energy has to be coming from somewhere else, has to be conserved from somewhere else. So the belief or the conclusion was that their BMRs or their basal metabolic rates became lower to help offset the total energy expenditure. So translation, they went from operating on six cylinders to four cylinders to become more gas efficient, if we want to put that into car metaphor terms. So as we know, race cars and like your V8s or your cars designed to go really fast and have lots of power are horrible with gas efficiency, 10, 12 miles to the gallon. And yet your little four-cylinder, you know, tiny little cars, they can go for like 20, 30 miles to the gallon. It's still a car, and yet the gas mileage varies wildly depending on efficiency. So what in human terms is, is that the cellular activity in the body overall can actually slow down so that it's burning less energy. So if you're putting yourself under constant physical activity, you might technically be burning the calories doing the activity, but you'll be burning less calories essentially to keep yourself alive. So another way to kind of translate this in terms of what you should or shouldn't be doing, by doing a quick bout of exercise, the body will do what it takes to survive. So if you're doing something like a high intensity interval training, or if you're just running on the treadmill for 30 minutes, you're essentially placing a temporary stress on the body, so it needs to rise to the occasion to burn that energy to survive. But if the activity is prolonged, so going essentially days and days and days of constant exercise, it will begin to cut corners on your BMR, that basal metabolic rate, so that way you don't keep the quote-unquote gas bill too high. You can still get done what needs to be done, but you're trying to be more efficient in other realms. That's not necessarily a bad thing, except in terms of weight loss when you're trying to burn more energy. So exercise is not a good direct approach to lose fat. If you can only burn an extra three to 500 calories a day before the body starts to begin to adjust, then that's going to take you a while of trying to lose weight simply by exercising. Especially if you have a surplus of 1,000 calories a day, then you're not even going to be able to outwork that bad diet. 
However, there are other indirect methods that make exercise irreplaceable. For starters, there is a litany of hormonal effects. Number one, let's talk about insulin. So in the part one of the series, we discussed why sugar can lead to insulin resistance and how that causes diabetes. Good news is with exercise, we can begin to nip that in the bud ASAP. Exercise has been shown to increase insulin sensitivity. The people with diabetes can reap the benefits of exercise pronto. Additionally, these benefits are reaped from day one, and they do not need to have an exercise plus weight loss in order to begin increased sensitivity. So if you're still not sure about what dietary changes you need to make and you need to do more research, you can start hitting the gym, getting your physical activity, increasing your insulin sensitivity, which is what we want, and mitigating the effects of diabetes or even prediabetes out of the gate to buy yourself some more time and help correct those hormonal imbalances. On top of this, I actually have a personal if you want to call it a case study, where I worked with a client who had type 1 diabetes. So type 1 is unique because their bodies do not make their own insulin, period, which is obviously life-threatening. So you have to take insulin every day, all the time. If you change your diet, or if you eat poorly, then you have to take more insulin. And so the body can, over time, begin to create a resistance to the drugs, which is not great. So what we would do is we would engage in high-intensity interval training sessions, or HIT training, for typically 12 to 15 minutes. So it doesn't take very long. Sometimes it would even be shorter than that. But enough that the intensity would be very, very high, creating a global shortage of energy, thus creating a global demand for reuptake of energy, which in turn means increased insulin sensitivity. So doing this within the first month of my type 1 type one diabetic client, he said that he cut his monthly medication intake in half because he was constantly having to monitor his blood sugar and administer insulin when necessary. He already knew at that point in his life, easily in his 40s, on average how much insulin he needed to take and what foods that he would need to avoid in order to avoid having to take additional medication on top of that with only changing intense exercise. And he had been going to the gym for about an hour because, of course, the doctor told him, oh, you need to do physical activity that will increase insulin sensitivity. But with the high-intensity training, his body was much more receptive of the medication because of the increased sensitivity, and he was spending a fraction of the time in the gym and resulted in way better results, leading to half of his medication intake. So out of the gate... Exercise is huge for weight loss by stemming some of the negative repercussions that can come from some of the comorbidities involved in obesity. Second, this is the real component of, in my opinion, how exercise can help with the caloric surplus energy balance, if you will, of obesity. And that is increased muscle mass is what yield higher basal metabolic rate. So in obesity, it's known that a low BMR has been shown to play a significant role. So if you're sitting on the couch doing nothing, you're not burning a lot of energy. However, if that person who's sitting on the couch has a very high amount of lean mass, they're going to burn a whole lot more energy doing nothing. Doesn't seem fair, but that's how it works. So as such, 
increasing your basal metabolic rate becomes an important goal in combating the disease. The best way to do that? Get gains. Citing a study called Skeletal Muscle Metabolism is a Major Determinant of Resting Energy Expenditure. This one's by Francesco Zerlo and others. And it concluded that increasing muscle mass was correlated with increased BMR. So the take-home is if you want to burn more calories sitting on your rump doing nothing, then you need to add muscle. And if you want to add muscle, you need to exercise. Specifically, you need to be doing weightlifting. So now this is a huge argument for not just aerobic exercise or even anaerobic exercise to help increase insulin sensitivity, but to also sprinkle in weightlifting and hypertrophy work into your exercise regimen. Aside from all of the functional benefits that you can get from weightlifting, in this, simply by increasing the muscle mass, you'll be able to increase the amount of energy you burn outside of the gym doing nothing. So the stronger or the more muscle mass that you have, the more energy you're going to burn on a daily basis. So now playing the long game, assuming you don't correct your caloric surplus. So if you're over a thousand calories a day, over time, if I'm continuing to add muscle mass, my basal metabolic rate or my BMR is going up. So if I burn 2000 calories and I'm eating 2200 a day, then I have a surplus of 200 calories. So every day, those 200 calories begin to add up. 3,000 calories is a pound of fat. Well, if I'm adding muscle mass, that means my 2,000 calories a day becomes 2,050, eventually 2,100. So now my def, my surplus is starting to get smaller. It takes time to add mass and increase your BMR, but the math adds up. If you are getting more lean mass, now that surplus is becoming smaller, and eventually, I guess in a very convoluted way, you could potentially outwork a bad diet. Of course, there are other factors like quality and whatnot that we talked about in session one, or part one of our series. So if you're looking to get immediate results, then you're going to need to make dietary changes. But if you have time to kill and you're not at death's door, then I suppose by adding muscle mass, you could increase your BMR and correct that surplus, depending, of course, on how much greater that surplus is compared to your BMR. Finally, another hormonal effect is cortisol. Cortisol, of course, being the quote-unquote stress chemical or stress hormone, it is vital for our survival. However, the poison is in the dose. So too much of anything usually leads to not great things. So in this case, we have a fascinating, another fascinating study that looked at twins. And not just fraternal twins, but identical twins. So in terms of experiments, twins are amazing because you're basically controlling for so many variables on a genetic level. You're, any differences between the twins are, are already excluded from being a genetic difference. They are the same person. So if they are different, you can almost completely attribute that to lifestyle factors. So... In this study, visceral fat and psychological stress in identical twins discordant for obesity by J. Marniemi and others. Ultimately, they divided twins into two groups and measured their BMR, blood pressure, sleep, 
psychological analysis, etc. So to account for any of the factors or differences that could go into why one twin would be obese and the other twin would not be. And the takeaway was that the belly fat was caused by psychological stress and the hormonal changes that affect the metabolism of the tissue, aka you're under stress, the stress hormones are released, and those hormones that were released from the stress directly affected fat tissue, particularly in belly fat, in the abdominal visceral fat. So they were actually able to tie stress to specifically belly fat. And of course, one of the big things we always hear is how do I lose the fat around my tummy? It may not be just a diet problem, but also a stress problem as well. So of course, how do we reduce cortisol? Well, we already told you. If you go back to episode five on reducing blood pressure, we gave a couple tips on how to reduce cortisol and actually increase its antithesis, the DHEA or its counter partner, which can help reduce all of the effects of stress, like high blood pressure, fat accumulation, etc. Spoiler alert, exercise is one of those strategies. Seeing as how this is the exercise episode for weight loss, of course, that should be a solution. Now, we've sort of skimmed the surface on each of these categories. Now, we've skimmed the surface as each of these categories could warrant an in-depth conversation in and of themselves. However, the goal was to stress the importance of exercise as an effective weight loss tool. We wanted to dispel the myths of how exercise helps with weight loss. So that way exercisers do not weaponize physical activity against themselves. The point is that we want to focus on building muscle mass, engaging in activity that yields positive hormonal changes like high intensity work from time to time, and not doing things that can lead to stress. Now, this is where it's a little bit up to interpretation. If doing a high-intensity workout freaks you out, you always get nervous, you hate it, you rue it during it, you rue it after, you rue it before, and it brings you nothing but mental anxiety, then you're doing the exact opposite of what the exercise is supposed to do. So this is the other reason why certain activities that may not seem very intense or have a high caloric burn, like Tai Chi, where you're moving very slowly with no resistance, can have positive effects in weight loss because you're doing hormone management. It doesn't just need to be ratcheting the heart rate for the sake of ratcheting up the heart rate. In certain instances, like increasing insulin sensitivity, that may need to be the case. However, it doesn't always have to be depending on what areas you're wanting to target. Are you targeting stress? Are you trying to target that insulin sensitivity? And finally, Aerobic exercise is not the end-all be-all for weight loss. You have the argument for weightlifting, increasing your muscle mass to increase your basal metabolic rate. So if you do change your diet and you create a 200-calorie deficit, if I'm adding muscle mass over time, my deficit now becomes 250, 300, and now I'm losing weight even faster because there's more of me to burn more energy. So having a varied exercise regimen between calming and managing stress, sprinkling some high intensity to work on your insulin sensitivity, but then also weightlifting to help increase your muscle mass and BMR. Having a nice combo, well-rounded exercise regimen is a great, great way to get positive results for weight loss. 
So next time for episode three, we'll be talking specifically about all of the factors of stress. We talked a little bit about it today, but we wanted to emphasize how exercise has a component in that, and that, that is a benefit of exercise. But next time we'll be talking more in depth on all of the various factors that stress can play, but additionally exercises and techniques and lifestyle interventions that we can do to help better manage stress. Until next time, stay healthy, stay happy.